folks, and welcome to another episode of Variable Depostulate Ensemble Projects. This is your friendly neighborhood studio man, Nick Drozdoff, and as always, I'll be acting as host, producer, engineer, booker, marketing director, and yeah, well, you get it. It's a one-man operation. Yes, it's a labor of love, but the idea is to give another voice to musicians, not necessarily from New York City or L.A., but who are every bit as deserving of similar respect and notoriety. There is a secondary function of this podcast has sort of evolved uh, throughout its development, and that is it's also sort of a career day seminar for uh, musicians in college or high school or even earlier who are considering going into music as a career. And there are all kinds of ideas that are being shared with musicians from all walks of life. So uh, that's kind of what the pod is all about. And I really hope you'll subscribe to it and check out all 19 episodes, 19 as of today. Before we get started, I wanted to give my weekly shout out to musical instrument companies I endorse. First, I play all wedge mouthpieces created and designed by Dr. Dave Harrison of Gabriola Island, British Columbia, Canada. These are wonderful mouthpieces and they work. I play them in everything from bass trumpet to piccolo. Regardless of what you might think of unique or unusual mouthpiece designs, you owe it to yourself to at least try one of these. If they work for you, you'll be glad you did. If you're not a wedge responder, and that's Dave's term, uh, he will not hustle you to buy one. Seriously, try one of these. Just go to wedgemouthpiece.com to find out more. Next, I endorse Getson trumpets. I play a Getson bass trumpet, several B-flats, C, four-valve flugelhorn, and piccolo. These are wonderful horns. They're made right in the USA in Elkhorn, Wisconsin, just north of Lake Geneva. And for high-quality professional-level horns, they're very favorably priced. Just go to Getzen, G-E-T-Z-E-N, Getzen.com, or contact your local music store music dealer to find out more. Recently, I had a Facebook chat, if you will, with Adam Gaines, professor of jazz studies and trumpet at University of Wisconsin in Green Bay. He had posted an article on his Facebook page on the iniquity of meritocracies. We started with differing points of view, not necessarily differing opinions, but differing points of view, but we quickly arrived at a consensus in our you know, uh, conversation, if you will, uh, online. I want to riff on that a bit, uh, but I'm going to save that for the end of the show as sort of an epilogue, so stay tuned. Next, I want to remind you, as I mentioned earlier, to please subscribe to this podcast, or if you're a Spotify user, just follow it. As of today, there are 19 episodes, and these are great sources of information uh, to potentially budding young professional musicians in college, high school, earlier, or even uh, adults who are considering a career change and going into music. Tons of ideas here. Uh, So please, subscribe, listen to the archives, uh, and that's I, I can't encourage you to do that enough. Now, I want to get to my conversation with today's guests. That's Dan Moffat, a Saxon woodwind man, who's also a public uh, school music teacher. Dan and I know each other primarily from our work with a band called Soul Vaccination, an R&B band, and his sub-work with the Jazz Consortium Big Band. I'll let Dan tell you his story. I do want to quick uh, put in a little technical point. Dan and I spoke via Skype, as do most of my guests. He had to use his phone as a hotspot at the junior high school where he teaches, and we did have some connection issues. I tried to clean up things as much as possible in the edit phase, but there might be a couple of rough patches. Just hang in there. 
This is a great story of leading a double life as a public school music teacher by day and a freelance professional music at night. Young music students need to hear of experiences like this as yet another model for chasing your dream of being involved with music professionally as your life's work. Before we get to the show, let's listen to Dan playing a solo with the Soul Vaccination Band. And here is the signature tune of the band from the Tower of Power Library. Here's his solo and the tune Soul Vaccination. Possible Projects is tenor saxophone player Dan Moffat. Dan, how are you doing today? Doing great. Good to be here, Nick. Yeah, thanks for thanks for doing this with us. Um, Dan, I'd kind of like you to tell us a little bit about yourself. You're a tenor saxophone player, and you're a music teacher, correct? Correct. Yes. Okay. And you're also a Selm is a Selmer clinician. Yeah, I'm I'm a, a Selmer artist. So cool. I, um, yeah, I'm an endorsed artist through through the Selmer Con Selmer Corporation. Well, that's excellent. Well, you can you can get some plugs in there whenever along the way where you feel so inclined. Uh, that's part of what we're all about here. All right, one of the things you know, if you if you've checked out any of the pods that I've been doing, one of the things that I um, one of the objects of this whole program, this series, is to give younger musicians who are considering a career in music, and you know, I shouldn't say that. Any musician, they don't necessarily have to be younger. It could be somebody considering a late-in-life career change. Um, but it gives some people an idea of what it's like to survive in music in the 21st century and to be a musician and share music and how to think outside the box as, as to what it is to do this. So first thing is, how, when did you decide to make music your life's work? How, how did you know this was something that was going to drive you like this? Well, I think um, it really hit me in high school. I um, well, I was went through the band programs just like typical um, students do, you know, picked a horn and played through junior high, and it was something I really enjoyed and I liked a lot, and I knew I always wanted to play. And when I get into high school, when I got into high school, I decided, you know, this is something I really want to make a career out of. Um, and I was on the fence, like, do I want to teach? Do I want to see myself in front of groups leading them or? Is it something where I want to play? And I decided, um, for me, just trying to make a living as a musician with my horn wasn't something I saw myself feasibly doing. Um, it was something that were 
I, I loved playing and I knew I always wanted to play here and there, but, um, I enjoyed, um, working with other people, teaching. As I got into college, I started college as a music major, a music education major. Okay. Um, and I went to school down at U of I in Champaign. And I always, um, I, as I got more and more into it, I kind of talked myself into like, wow, this is really, I enjoy teaching. Because in high school, I didn't know it, I would enjoy it as much. I thought, well, it'd be great to play and make a career with my saxophone. But, you know, that's, um, for me, you know, I, I eventually want to have a family and I don't want to, you know, the, the travel and just the hustle. I mean, you know how that is. Yeah, um, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So I decided um, pretty early on in college, like, I really I want to go for this teaching thing. And when I started teaching, I I kind of didn't play my horn for a few years. Like as far as seriously trying to gig, I was just teaching and I played in some community groups here and there. But I just started to fall into playing you know i get called for a gig someone would you know get my number then i'd get called for something else and eventually i I found that i was you know i was playing more often than i had planned on and i really enjoyed it so then it was like okay balancing teaching full-time and then picking up gigs on the weekend with different Uh band different different ensembles um and that's kind of where i'm at right now i'm i'm kind of doing both um definitely the the um, majority of my income comes from teaching. Um, I'm not, uh, I wouldn't be able to sustain myself right now just playing my horn. And it's a tough climate right now anyways, just um, yeah. picking up, picking up jobs and gigs. And um, I think I counted last, this past season, I think I, I played with 20 different bands throughout the year. Oh um, my. Which was the most I've ever done. Just getting calls for odd things here and there, you know, and um People come into town who need a horn for just a night or someone who, who's sick and needs a sub for, for a wedding. or um, And then a handful of those are my own groups just playing with. Um, 20 bands. That's that's a serious freelance position. That's great. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's, a lot of them were just like one-offs. But um, Still, they started, that's, that's they started um, how did you start working? How did your career begin with, with all this? I mean, uh, and maybe you can compartmentalize a little bit. How did your teaching start and how did your gigging start up again? Well, after college, so I, I student taught, um, at a, a high school, um, in, in Hickory Hills. And I, I met up with, um, with a guy who had student taught there. His name is Chuck Morgan. He's a trombone player out of Joliet. And he, kind of recommended me for, he was leaving a position in Joliet and he recommended me to the administration for the, the band director position, um, at a, a small school called Laraway out in Joliet. Oh, and I, wow. I taught there, I got hired there and I taught there for seven years. Oh my. And yeah. from there I moved out to North Riverside, which is where I'm at now. Uh, I teach in junior high band and this is my 16th year in North Riverside. Um, so I've been a band director with 23 or so years, um, on my 23rd year, uh, when I was teaching in Joliet, it was funny. Um, the secretary of the school, um, Janie Lewis, uh, was a Barry sax player in the local community band at Joliet junior college. And she, she knew I was a new student. I was a saxophonist or a new teacher in her district. She invited me to come out to the, her husband, Jerry Lewis conducted the, the, um, community band out there at Joliet. I can't, I can't let that go by Jerry Lewis. Really? 
Right, right. Yeah, yeah not the comedian. <laughs> Sorry, I was I'm like, wait, you're married you're, you're married to Jerry Lewis? Like, no, the other Jerry Lewis. <laughs> the other Jerry. Um, right. So Jerry is a great um, great trumpet player and, and a great teacher. He, he led the, the band department at Joint Junior College for many, many years. And I went out there and just played in the community band. I had my wife come out, too. She played flute in the band. I played saxophone. And from there, I made some connections. And I think years later, I would get I'd get called from guys who were in that band but needed a horn player for something, for another job, for this and that. And so it was just my like playing in these community groups that started to, I think, snowball into getting called for things that actually paid and were for other, you know, uh, bigger artists or people who were coming into town um, or someone who needed a sax for their their band, whatever it was. Because, I mean, community bands, it's just for fun. Everyone comes out and nobody's getting paid. Everyone does it for the love of it. And just I just yeah, want yeah. to keep I wanted to keep playing my horn because now I'm teaching five days a week straight all year and i wanted to still play i wanted to because that's yeah. what i got into this for because i enjoyed i loved playing my horn so much it was something that since i was a little kid i just enjoyed it immensely and i knew when i started teaching i'm still i'm not going to be one of these guys who puts their horn up and says i'm done I, you know I, I still wanted to play i didn't have ambitions of it turning into a um a busy like freelance career or anything along those lines i just wanted to play and it just kind of slowly i started getting calls and I, I just would find okay if i you know you show up on time you're polite to people and you're prepared um that goes a long way and i'd get more calls <laughs> You may have mentioned it, but you want to kind of check with this. Uh, where did you, uh, what's your uh, background with your education? Where did you go to college? So I went down. I went to uh, University of Illinois down in uh, Champaign-Urbana. Okay. And I did my uh, my undergrad there in music ed, and then um, 
So in the nineties, and then I went back to school. Um, huh? I went back to school in um, a school bell there. Speaking of, yeah, school. I was going to say. <laughs> In uh, 2002 to 04, I, I went back with my wife, and we did summers for our master's program um, at U of I also. So I did okay. my, my bachelor's and master's, both both at U of I and Champaign. In music education. Right, in music ed, yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm, okay, I'm still kind of trying to make a lot of connections here. Um, next thing I want to circle back to is you mentioned playing in community bands. Were these concert bands, wind ensembles, or jazz bands? So when I graduated, um, finished student teaching, graduated college, I joined, I think I was in up to four different concert bands at a time and one jazz band. Wow. Um, I started to weed those out. I did, once I, um, once I got out at U of I, I joined um, a great band in Wheaton, the Wheaton Municipal Band. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, was playing, I was playing alto sax with them. And then I did that for a summer. Then I got a job in Joliet Teaching Band. And at that time, I, I joined up with the Joliet Junior College Concert Band. And um, that was Monday nights every week. And then they talked me into doing their jazz band. And that was Wednesday nights every week. So I was a young guy, uh, wasn't yet married, no kids. So I thought, yeah, this is great. So I was every Monday, Wednesday, I'd stay after school in Joliet and just go out to the to the college and play in, in the band's um, so a, a bunch of them were concert bands, but then it was, uh, the jazz band at Joliet as well that I was playing in for a while. Okay. And you feel like these community bands, that's where you initially made your contacts that dovetailed out into all these, um, uh, bands that you're playing with. Is that where this all initially really came to being? That was, uh, one part of it. Yeah. I, I started, um, I'd meet guys and, um, just kind of make some friendships and get calls from people who were in those bands. There were a handful of people in those bands who were professional musicians. There were a lot of band directors in those bands. There were people in, in different trades and just in different skills who, who did something that was totally unrelated to music during the day. And they just wanted to connect with um, kind of their artistic side, I guess, in the evening and they would come out and play. So you had all people from all walks of life. So I just kind of met some people through those community bands and some of them you wouldn't hear from for years, but then you would get a random call from somebody here and there. Um, the, another connection I kind of made that helped me start playing, but like recently I've been doing a lot of like rock kind of rock gigs, like classic yeah, yeah. rock rock bands. And I had really no experience with that um, at all. I was playing classical music and I'd play, um, in some, there's the bell. Okay. Yeah, I know. No, I do some, uh, some, gigs, some big band gigs, some combo work, but I got a, a random call. I was um, advertising. I had a saxophone quartet from college, and we kind of would get together every so often and read music, and we'd write arrangements for ourselves, and we would play at each other's weddings when we were all getting married, and I started advertising us on Craigslist, like, hey, if you need a sax quartet, um, give us a call. So I got a couple people answering my ads saying, well, I don't want a sax quartet, but I'm looking for a horn section for my rock band. So I answered some of those ads and started playing in some just kind of um, bar bands, rock bands, those kind of things. And it was uh, that was really fun for me at first because I had never done jobs like like that where I'm playing classic rock stuff with singers and guitarists and drummers and bass players. And um, it was just I had not done that before. 
and it was a it was a blast for a while. And there you just kind of start doing those shows, and people start calling you like maybe the keyboard player from this band that you're you're in. He's got his own group, and then he gets your. He's like, oh, you played that solo nice. I'm gonna get your number afterwards, and then you get a call for his band, and then in his band maybe the lead singer has another project, and they're like, oh, I remember that guy. I'm gonna call him, and it, that kind of started to spin um, a little bit from um, from my initial getting called through my saxophone quartet on on um, Craigslist to end up playing in some of these rock bands. It just kind of, and that's kind of how, well, we started with me and you playing in soul vaccination together. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of where that led us to really, because um, uh, I met um, our mutual friend, Norm Freedy through, we got called together from one of these Craigslist gigs. And wow. then he, he called you on a gig and I was like, Oh, okay. It's like this guy, Nick, you got to meet Nick. He played with Manners. Like, wow, okay, that's cool. Yeah, I got to meet Nick. Oh, <laughs> yeah. well, that's a, you're the second person to talk to me about having gotten uh, a significant part of their uh, start with Craigslist. Uh, and this is the sort of thing I like to have come gurgling to the surface with these conversations, various and sundry different ways uh, people can pick up and get sources for um, developing work as musicians. Very, very interesting. Okay, well, i got to get this in there. Um, th in the course of the year, as I've been doing this podcast, I've been interviewing all kinds of different people, uh, men, women, young, old, whatever. Uh, and so I, I kind of like to usually get this out there because I uh, mainly to give a – a sense of perspective of where we're coming from. Uh, everybody knows that I am a, a boomer. I am a baby boomer. Uh, and and when I first got started in business, things were different as to how we do them. I just spoke to Roy Vonbrek last week, and we both used tapes. We we went out and shopped demo tapes. Roy, I used cassettes. Roy was actually running around with real reels. And uh, you're coming at this from the point of view of using an online source as a means of developing all this. So I need to ask this, where do you fit in the chronological spectrum? You're, you're not a boomer. You are putting it bluntly younger than I am. Uh, but I don't, are you, you're older than a millennial. Are, so, where are you? I'm, uh, I'm 44. Okay. So I guess would, would that be a gen Xer? I was I mean, going to say that's a, that's how it's going to Xy gen Xy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I was a child of the eighties. Um, Born born in seventy five, so okay. yeah, I think I, that's where I my I would fit into that whole that whole labeling issue. Okay. But, uh, yeah, yeah. I just use again. It gives our listeners a a little bit of a profile that they can consider as they're thinking about the the historical uh, underpinnings of what you know of what you did to develop this stuff. Uh, okay. All right. So we got that out of the way. Uh, Dan. Uh, in, in working with you, I've often had conversations with you or heard you talking about uh, playing with the Buckhams. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, I guess maybe start with how did you get that gig? Well, yeah, that actually is funny. That goes back to my Joliet days as well. Um, so the um, the gentleman who kind of helped get my first job um, teaching band, uh, Chuck Morgan, he he now, now he's a he's the head of music at Joliet Junior College. At the time, he was teaching at a junior high and leaving that school. This was 25 years ago or so. Um, so he is the trombone player with the Buckinghams, and he's been with them maybe 20 years, give or take. I think around that that 
that time. And he, um, so I played with, with him in, in his, um, in concert band with him. And then when, when he started teaching at the college, he started teaching the jazz band. I started playing with him in, in that group as well. And then years later, um, I think they were looking for a sub. You know, they, they do a lot of dates and they pick up a lot of horn players all over, all over the country. Um, I think I had heard they have like 50 horn sections just wow. from coast to coast that they will use when they're traveling wherever they're going because they, they, they play quite a bit. And they do a, a lot of dates in the Midwest here, so they want a home base horn section that knows the book and that they could count on and that they really you know um, have trust and faith and musically. Yeah. And Chuck is part of that. Chuck is part of that. Carlo Isabelli is the, the trumpeter okay. and then Chuck Morgan. Um, they asked me, we were playing a gig, um, a big band gig at a bar. I think we were at Hackney's actually, okay. um, rest, rest in peace. Um, and this was maybe five years ago or so. And, um, I think the, the normal sax player couldn't make a, a, a date or a series of dates and, Chuck, I, I'd found out because Carlo asked me, the trumpet player, if I could cover a date. And I'd found out Chuck had kind of given him my name and said, hey, call Dan. You know, he's a good reader. He's, he'll, he'll fit in. Um, so I played I played a couple dates with them. The first date I played with the Buggingham's, it was a, a Summerfest gig um, up in Milwaukee. And I, I kind of knew of their music because growing up, my, my mom listened to it a lot. Um, but I hadn't like read their book before and I didn't have much kind of uh, preparation because I got a call just a few days before. Um, so I walked out and it was like, there was 6,000 people out there uh -huh. at this, this park we were in. If you've been to Summerfest, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, all these just permanent structures, all these stages, they have 10, 12 stages right along. Like, so I played that show and that was my first time with them. And I you think just, um, you the lead sight. singer really took a liking to me. He talked to me after. Were you just yeah, sight just reading that sight show? read the, the show wow. with those two guys. Yeah, yeah, I just sight read the show. It's not, I mean, their hits, when you listen to them, they're real catchy hit tunes. Yeah, so I walked out and we, um, I, I sight read that gig and it, it went pretty well. You know, the, the, the other guys helped me out a lot with them. Um, some of the changes, because the big challenge is not, I don't think, reading the, the horn parts. It's knowing where to go, where the cuts are, the transitions. And, and, you know, there's things that they're used to on any, you know, any band that, oh, we do it this way, but it's written like this. And we cut this out and we go back to here. So they, yeah, you know, yeah. they kind of gave me like the head nods and the, you know, no, do this and that. And um, it, it went really well. It was a lot of fun. I knew a bunch of the charts just from hearing them. And they cover a lot of artists, too. So they do their big hits, and they have like six or seven hits that had radio play, and some of them had really significant radio play. They had a number one hit, uh, kind of a drag, so they end with that one every show. Oh, yeah. um, but they also cover some tunes from like bands like Chicago and from The Doors, and they do a whole, whole 60s medley that's like six pages of all these jumps and and wow. stuff. So it, it does, there are some stuff. There's, there's, there's a bit of heavy lifting here and there in the book. Um, but I thought, you know, I'm, I think my biggest skill as a musician, um, there's guys who could play great solos and there's guys who can do this and that, but I feel like, um, sight reading, uh, me coming up as a saxophonist, I was always a classical saxophonist through, through college even. And, and I always really 
um, prided myself on on my reading. Like I can, yeah. you know, get through a book and I'll, I'll I'm not going to drop drop parts. So I think that helps me a lot when I step into situations like that where I didn't really have a lot of familiarity with the book. I hadn't played it before. I might have heard the tunes. I might have played a few of them with other bands, but it, just being able to sight read and keep up with them. Um, I think that goes a long way. And, and this, the lead singer, Carl, um, came up afterwards and complimented me. And he's like, you did a great job. He's like, you know, and he asked, would you be available for some more shows? I'm like, well, you know, that you guys are awesome. This is really tons of fun. Whenever you need me, yeah. just Carl's got my number. Whenever you guys need me, give me a call. So slowly they started to call me a little more here and there. Um, you know, I was still kind of subbing on and off. And, um, that was for like a year or so. And then eventually I was just like, yeah, you're going to, we're just going to call you for gigs. And, um, so that's been, that's been a fun, yeah, I think that's been that's four or five years, maybe. Wow. I've been doing that. Now, is that a Chicago based group? They are a Chicago based group. Yeah. They're from the West suburbs. Um, so yeah, they're a, they're a Chicago based, all five of the original guys were from, from Chicago and they oh, formed the band when they were all in high school. Oh, um, wow. So, and this was, they formed it and it was in the mid late sixties. I mean, they hit really hard in 67 with all their radio hits. Sure. So they've been going, this is year 53, I think. Oh my. And yeah. three, three of the originals are still out performing. Dennis Tufano still sings and does his own thing. And then Carl Jamarisi and Nick Fortuna are heading the Buckinghams and they, they're the original guys. So, yeah, they're still, they don't look their age. They look a lot younger and they sound, really <laughs> good, so I'm not going to say their age, but. Uh, no, yeah. Good. Yeah. Let's not go there. <laughs> we're not, not going to do that. Yeah. Do you travel with them at all? I, um, I've traveled a little bit, not, not a, a whole lot. Like they're going to do a, a rock cruise coming up in about a week. And I'm not, I'm not going on that. The other two guys are going to go on that one and they're just going to pick up a sax player on the ship. Um, yeah. I'd like to travel with them some, but, um, it's difficult because I have, I have three children that are all in school yeah, and I'm in school. I'm in school actually at the moment, but I teach and my wife teaches. So it's something where it's a really good fit for me because there's not pressure of you have to cover these dates. You have to travel. Um, I get to play all the home dates with them on the home court. And then when they go to the West coast or they do these cruises, um, or they go to New York, they they pick up they have guys that they know and they they pick up horn section so i'm not no i don't go with them when they're on the road but it's kind of nice because vice versa when other bands leave their hometown and come in i've kind of gotten um a little bit of i guess um, name recognition from playing the shows with the buggingham's where other bands will come in and, and call me and i get to play their shows ah, when so they get some spinoff work Yes. Oh, yeah. great. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Now, interesting. You mentioned you teach junior high, middle school, junior high. Correct. Right. Now, um, this has always been sort of fascinating to me. Now, yeah. I'm also well. I'm a retired high school teacher. I I taught physics of all things, but you know, let's not even talk about that. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, the one advantage of being a high school physics teacher was uh, particularly because I taught early bird. Uh, at 2.30, I was done. So I could take gigs, I could go home and practice, all kinds of stuff. Most of my friends, there's only a handful of my friends who are in the teaching business like you are, who teach high school. 
who still play. I can think of maybe two or three guys that I bump into on gigs on a regular basis who are high school teachers. Most of them find that the high school thing is so brutal on them that they end up kind of hanging up their horns. Um, but the guys I know who do junior high just find, you know, I, I run into those guys on the gigs a lot more and they all play like they never put the horn up. Uh, so it seems like the junior high environment is much more conducive to burning both ends of the candle, so to speak. To what would you attribute that? So I have kind of two words to explain that. I think uh, marching band. Like that. <laughs> okay. I mean, I was <laughs> early on in, in, in my teaching career, I, I tried to get a high school gig. I was real close a couple of times. I was like um, one of the finalists, semi-finalists, and then they went with the other guy or the other girl um, in cer certain cases. And I have found that to be a blessing in disguise because all the people I know who teach high school in the fall, they don't, they not only have, don't have time to gig. I mean, they don't see their families that often either. Oh, wow. You're, you're at school late with rehearsals, um, weekends, you, you got football games, you got, um, parades, you're doing marching band competitions, um, band trips, my son just went on a marching band trip. Uh, he goes to Hinsdale Central. They just went to Rome. You know, oh, a big my. trip. Yeah, yeah. Rome. The directors planned that, and they went to Rome themselves on a practice run of the trip. And then they went for real with, with the full however many, 150, 200 kids that they took to Rome. Um, it's My son is a freshman in band at the moment in high school, and I'm seeing the schedule uh, from a parent side of it. But I, I remember being in in high school and being in marching band, and we rehearsed every day after school. Not every high school is like that, but yeah. we were a very competitive marching program, and we rehearsed every day. We, um, it was very very time consuming. So I think if you're a high school teacher and you're you're a band director, you're going to have some involvement with um, the marching side of things, and that that just takes away, well, there's your gigs for the fall. You're yeah. not going to be able to take much. It, and for junior high, most junior highs do not march. And if you do march, it's just for a parade or an event here and there. It's not going to be learning a field show for, okay. uh, yeah. for yeah. A, you know, a competition. So it really, I think junior high teachers, we're, we're running all day teaching lessons and sectionals and getting things going. But once um, our bell rings at 309 and we leave at 320, um, I don't have a lot of after-school commitments. I have, my band concerts are after school, but that's every every quarter. I have four of those a year, um, solo contest, a couple other things. But for it's not like a high school teacher where their their after-school schedule is like a whole second job. I mean, so I think that's a big factor in it. You know, it's not that high school teachers don't like to play; it's that they they're so tired. They just can't. Yeah, they just get they, they get exhausted. Um, you, you know, it's funny. Nutrier, you know, had a reputation. That's where I taught high school physics, and they had something of a reputation for not having a marching band. But even with that, Jim Warwick didn't job. He didn't go out and play gigs at all. Now Nick Meyer does, but you know, uh, I, you know, he seems to have found a way to balance that. I guess not having marching band is the key to that. 
Okay, that's fascinating. I can almost predict what you're going to say when I ask that, but I, <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll just let that we'll let that go by there. Um, now, uh, do you do any private lessons outside of school? Do you teach out privately outside of school? I do. I actually tonight after I leave school, I'm going to have a little studio of saxophonists come to my home. Um, I do a couple nights a week. I have students come. I have about I have six students right now that I okay. teach out home and that's during the weekdays i try and put them all down um one day a week but i've been kind of splitting them between a couple days and i also teach um i'm adjunct uh i adjunct at benedictine university for their saxophone studio oh wow i uh wednesdays i leave from school and i drive right over to benedictine and i do um an hour and a half of lessons there every wednesday Okay, this is a this is an interesting aspect of survival in music in the 21st century. You're teaching junior high by day, you're an adjunct professor um, doing private lessons and playing with 20 different bands. But you know, it's a it's a labor of love. I'm sure you know that. I know a, I can just sense that stuff. All right, Dan. So uh, and uh, poking around your website uh, and you know again conversations, you did a, a a little book, correct? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. I um, was starting to get more into like playing with these rock bands that I, I, I alluded to earlier. Um, I was thinking, yeah, there's a lot of like really iconic saxophone rock solos that maybe don't get a whole lot of love because they're not in traditional. They're not jazz. They're not um, um, something that if you're like supposedly a serious saxophonist, you wouldn't really maybe delve into that stuff too too much but i thought well there's some cool stuff out there i, I want to try some of this stuff and it actually it started as a dare a couple of friends of mine who are non-musicians started um we're actually golf buddies they're texting me and they're challenging me hey can you play this solo can you play this from this song and that song and <laughs> i thought i thought well i never have but yeah i could probably do that so i I'd, I'd i'd text them back i'd put the video on and i'd play the solo back to them and just kind of real quick, just figure out what it is. And they go nuts and say, wow, that's amazing. How'd you do that? And I'm like, well, that's um, you know, so what I do. I'm a saxophonist. And they're like, you should write those down. So I started kind of just as a funny thing. Every Friday I would post a, a video of me playing a solo and I'd challenge people to guess what it was. And, and I did this for months and months. And after a while I had compiled 30 plus transcriptions from huh. pop solos, you know, or pop hits. And I thought, okay, I'm going to maybe put these together and package it, package it up and make it kind of a fun thing and send it to some of my friends. So it's now it's online on, on my um, website, danmoffitt.com. Um, and I think I did 33 songs uh, and I wrote them out for um, Alta and for tenor because a lot of people like a lot of people email me and say well i need this solo in in but i play an alto and it's in tenor uh -huh. and and that that happens a lot if you're looking for a transcription it's usually typically written in the key the original artist played it uh -huh. in uh -huh. on the horn they played it in so if it's an alto solo you're not going to see usually a tenor version of it you just have to make sure you have an alto but a lot of people they're just playing in, in bar bands and they, they just have one horn so i put each one in in two keys so that if you're playing an alto all night you could play these things and kind of 
arranged it so that it will still work for that instrument and vice versa. Um, so yeah, it was a fun, it, it just started as a kind of a, a, a challenge from just a couple of my friends who aren't, aren't in, in music. And then I just kind of started rolling with it and put it together as a, as a book. And I think I finished it a little over a year ago, actually. Cool. So if people want to buy this book, they go to danmoffett.com. Right. Okay. Right. That's uh, M-O-F-E-T-T. Uh, two F's, M-O-F-F-E-T-T. Okay, yeah, we got to get that straight. <laughs> we right. don't want to lo- lose any customers here. to know working with you from playing with soul vaccination you mentioned norm freedy earlier norm uh got me playing with that band i think it was under a different incarnation but yeah uh, and then um, um uh, i got to you know really enjoying listening to you play because that's a that's a fairly big horn section um now i've always seen you play tenor with that band but do you play all the horns I do. Yeah, I, I do. Tenor is probably where I feel most at home, but um, I do a fair amount of work on alto and then some soprano work okay. as well. And I've gotten lately called for some Barry things um, and done some Motown stuff on Barry Sachs for some different artists. So, yeah, I do try to um, be versatile as much as I can be. And I feel like the hardest part is just finding a good sound on each horn finding a good setup that's going to work and make that's you tough. Yeah, feel yeah. comfortable because all the mouthpieces are drastically different and the reeds react differently yeah. but um, the mechanics of it are they're all basically the same just bigger versions of each other or smaller but um yeah i do try and get around but like i said tenor when i'm practicing my horn it's going to be tenor i'm not i'm not typically going to practice on a soprano or an alto do you any clarinet stuff I do, yeah, I do play a lot of clarinet as well. Okay. Um, that I don't get to play out on clarinet as often, but um, yeah, I do love playing clarinet. It's a lot of fun, and it really, when I learned clarinet, it honed in and tightened up my technique for saxophone because it's like <laughs> there's no room for error on the. US <laughs> yeah, they're game. pretty unforgiving. I do know that they are very unforgiving, and it yeah. really makes, it makes you be honest. Yeah. Now you have sort of become one of the de facto. Uh, leaders, managers of soul vaccination. Tell us about that band. I think our listeners would really like to know something about that band. Yeah, well, that's a, I love uh, that, that group, just the group of musicians we put together, yourself included, is very, I, I'm very excited about. Norm and I were playing in, in a different group, and he thought, you know, we could have our own group and play what we want to play and hire who we want to hire. So we uh-huh. just kind of split off. And, and I, I thought, well, these people I would love to get on, on this band, but these, you know, as like I had my wish list and I'd start messaging people and calling people and everybody said yes. And I was shocked. I'm like, all right, well, we got, I was expecting, well, we'd have to go to this tier or that tier of uh-huh. musicians, but we got everybody we set out to get. And, um, that I've kind of, uh, Norm and I have kind of, kind of built the band and, and, um, 
I do a lot of um, like our online stuff. Um, I did well. I designed our website, and I, I maintained that. Uh-huh. Um, and personnel, Norm and I both kind of had a big hand in that. And Norm handles the charts and the books, and um, and a lot of those type situations. You know, some of the logistics of it. But um, and and kind of for rehearsals, I let him go with. Well, we're gonna run. We're gonna work on this tune. And what I like about it is everybody could just have an input and just say what they feel. And there's no one person who kind of decides everything. And and um, maybe that gets messy sometimes. But um, I think we everyone makes it work because everyone's just really nice. Everyone's cool and everyone can play. And that's yeah. Part right. So everybody's serious about making the music i think i mean that's the thing i feel when i'm working with you guys is that you know we this is this is great music let's take it seriously and go for it um and i think that let's take it seriously part is what 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 means so much so what kind of music does soul vaccination play well we do um a lot of uh like funk and old school kind of rock horn rock we cover a lot of tower power um, we delve into some, some stuff by Chicago, some Motown, some Stevie Wonder. Um, we, we have like a, a pretty good mix and I'd say it's a little more tower power than some of these other horn bands because, well, again, soul vaccination was the name of a tower power yeah. song. So yeah, we got to cover that. Signature and I tune. Think, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. So, and we have a larger horn section to kind of reflect that whereas a lot of these other rock bands i play with or, or hear well the typical three horn section where you got a, a sax a bone and a trumpet um well we've doubled that we have six horns so that's um you know we really fill out i think that horn sound um with with having six guys when we started it we had five and then we added a a third saxophone. It was funny. Norm asked me, he's like, well, I want to add a sixth horn. And I was very leery because some <laughs> of these horn bands I've played in, it's like the more people you add to that horn line, the more out of tune it gets and the more sloppy the the um, articulations and the, the um, interpretation becomes kind of a mess. And I told him, you know, I don't, I think five is enough. You know, we're I think we're we're okay. I don't want to just throw something else in here. And and he said, well, I I wanted to get Josh Shapiro for the sixth sax part. I'm like, okay, do it. I'm I'm game for getting six guys. I changed my tune right away because <laughs> I love playing with Josh, and it was yeah. like an excuse to play with him more and to hear him play more. So I'm like, let's do it. And he's playing alto, which I think he's taken one for the team because I think like me, he likes playing tenor more than alto. Uh-huh. Um, but. Um, He's um and on any horn he won't say he's a monster on any horn but um that's kind of how I view Josh so it's good to have him and and you and and Mike on the trumpets and um Ed, Doc, Ed Dr Ryan. Mike Stewart Dr Michael Doc, Stewart got to get Stewart. that in there <laughs> Dr Mike yeah we got the doctor and <laughs> Ed, Ed Enright on the the Barry sax which is um he's a monster Barry player so it's um it's a fun group and I'm looking forward to continuing on with it but yeah we do all the classic stuff some funk some anything that has a groove and it's um you know it, it moves we'll 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 attempt it yeah now we've got some concerts coming up this summer how can people find out about this stuff so good question you could go on um soulvac.com s-o-u-l-v-a-c.com and our our dates will be posted on there 
we have some shows coming um, in August, some outdoor shows on the 12th and the 19th of August, and we're working on getting some other stuff um, coming in. But um, our you could go on soulvac.com and you could hear the band on there and um, read about who's in the band, what kind of our backgrounds as individual musicians, what we've done, and and see where we're going with, with the group. So that's, um, yeah, soulvac.com. Cool stuff. Um, all right, kind of circling back to your personal background still, do you play with any big bands? I mean, you, I know you play with the rock bands and the community, but are you playing uh, big band jazz groups? I um, I don't regularly play with, with big bands, but I will I'll sit in here and there. Um, I get calls to play um, occasionally with Pete Elman's big band. Oh, yeah. That's a killer out, band. Out Aurora. So I, I play with them uh, here and there. Uh, it's funny. I, I had called or I, I, I texted them because my son was playing in the opening band for Pete Elman's. This was last fall. Uh-huh. And I asked him, like, well, my son's going to be there, my whole family, and it would be cool if his band played, and then I got to play a little bit. So can That's I just cool. sit in, yeah. I sit in with you guys? And they're like, yeah, you could play, actually. So they got me a seat in there and played. And then they called me for a few other um, jobs. I think those are are those Wednesday nights they do. Yeah, I'm I think so. remember which night because a lot of – yeah, it's like every night you could find a really killer band. And as you know, a lot of people kind of jump around from band to band. Right, right. Um, and yeah, I've done um, the um, what? What other groups? Now I'm trying to uh, jazz consortium or jazz consortium. Consor- <laughs> Roy, Roy never fails to comment about that. He says, "Well, it's consortium or consortium, depending right. what part of the world they're from." So either way, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've yeah. seen because I play with a consortium too. Right. Uh, but um, okay, so yeah, but again, it's all part of the whole. Uh, you know, survival thing and and, all, and making music thing. Um, exactly. All right, kind of getting back to you know the notion that maybe some of your students might be listening to this. <laughs> uh, how much time do you devote to practice every day? I mean, you've got a lot going on. How much time can you devote to sitting down and just working out on your horn? Well, I'm lucky. I'm a reed player and not a brass player in that respect because I could get. <laughs> Honestly, if I'm honest, I'll say I, I I get away with a lot of downtime where I don't touch my horn as much as I should. Uh-huh. I kind of go in spurts where I'm really motivated to play it a lot and I'm working on new things. And then moments that I'm in now of just maintenance where I'm just trying to I'm playing it so that I will not die on a gig where I can. Yeah. I'm not going to I'm not going to be a detriment to the band. I'm not uh-huh. going to. Um, but I feel like the saxophone for me lends itself to, to that schedule where I'll, I'll have stretches where I'll try to play a couple hours a day. It's really impossible for me to do more than two hours a day, uh-huh. um, at, at the current schedule I'm at, but That's I'll cool. have days where I don't, I don't get to pick it up at all. Now, when I'm teaching junior high, like today, I haven't played saxophone yet today. I've played the instruments I have played today. I've played baritone trumpet trombone flute um drum drum set xylophone and keyboard i've played those instruments today i haven't touched a saxophone today um hopefully i will tonight although i do yeah. have i am teaching privately tonight so i will have a saxophone in my hand for those lessons but um yeah so it's it's i'm i'm not on a set schedule it's just when i have time and i can yeah. pick it up 
I don't want to pick it up if I have 10 minutes. I want to be able to, to at least have a solid half hour, 45 minutes to be able to play it. So often in between lessons at school, I'll play my horn. Um, at home, when I'm teaching lessons, if somebody doesn't show up, I have a half hour there where I can play and practice. And um, so it's it's not, I don't have a set like you're going to do an hour in the morning and two hours at night. Um, but again, I don't recommend that, especially if you're a brass player, as you know. <laughs> Dan, we've been talking for a long time. Great conversation. This is going to be, uh, again, really useful input into the mix of ideas of what this uh, podcast is all about. So here's the concluding question. I typically ask this in some way or another of everybody I talk to. Here's a premise. We want to encourage newer musicians to pursue their dreams to go into music, make it their life. How would you advise a young musician who wants to, who's considering going to college and majoring in music, how would you advise them to wisely uh, uh, follow this dream? Wow, that's a really, that is the question. Um, I'd say, you know, you have to really love music if it's something you want to pursue professionally, because there's going to be tough times where it's not, um, everything isn't going to go your way. I mean, like anything you choose, right? You just have to make sure you you love it. It's something you can't live without. That was something with me where I just loved it. I really knew in one form or the other I wanted to continue on with it. Um, I would suggest if you could find a mentor, somebody who is similar to you and you're kind of in your path, but they're a little bit further along in their path where they can guide you and kind of show you you're going to make your own mistakes, but they can kind of smooth the road for you a little bit, tell you, well, this is kind of what to expect. You know, everybody has that in place. If you're a teacher, you, you get assigned a mentoring teacher and they could help alleviate some of those first year uh -huh. difficulties and rough transitions, which we're all going to have and we're all going to go through. But um, there's not somebody set for you if, if you're going to be a musician and you want to play. Um, I'd say just look, find someone who you admire as a player, someone who's really successful see what works for them and what maybe doesn't work for other people, you know, and, and don't, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You're going to be your own, as far as your style and your musicianship, um, that's unique to you. But as far as, um, making a living, getting gigs, being self-sufficient, promoting yourself, you know, these are things that everybody has to do. And, there's just certain rules that apply, certain unwritten rules, and just find seeking out help. Don't be too proud. Don't be too closed off to new ideas. I'm, I, st I tell my students this. Look, I don't know everything. I'm, I'm an adult. That doesn't mean I'm perfect. If I don't know the answer, I'm going to tell you I don't know the answer, but I'm going to work hard to find the answer for you. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, if you see something I'm doing incorrect, because some of these kids, they don't want to, you know, they've been taught, well, no, don't you don't correct the teacher. I don't, I don't believe in that. Um, I feel like if you're going on that path, you should, again, you should seek out someone who, who you feel you respect. You feel like they're, they're doing it. They're out there. They're making it happen. And, you know, how can I get a little bit of that? Cause it's tough. I and mean, you know how, especially nowadays, um, places that are cutting back or they're, they're not, um, hiring or, or the, the pay sometimes sometimes you get I take us a, a, a low paying gig and then I 
something else comes out of it and then I end up with something great uh-huh, just from uh-huh. contacts I've made. So I'd say I never never turn down a gig when someone calls me. If okay. if I if I can at all do it, I will do it. I've driven to gigs where literally I only knew the address. I didn't know who was in the band. I didn't know what music we were playing. I didn't even know what style of music we were playing. I just get there and yeah. if some you know, that could be a scary kind of thought but i was just like you know what's the worst that could happen you know i'm uh-huh. you just get there and and some great things have happened because of that yeah yeah well dan thanks so much for talking to me today taking out of your time out of your busy schedule as a high school as a junior high school teacher uh i'm so grateful you were able to do this and i think you really can contri- again contribute a lot to the mix here so dan thanks for doing this man Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, we'll see you on March 30th. All right. That sounds good. As mentioned earlier, Adam Gaines brought up the article titled, A Belief in Meritocracy is Not Only False, It is Bad for You, by author Clifton Mark. One of the points of the article is based on this fact. 69% of Americans believe that people are rewarded for intelligence and skill. However, the central thesis of the article is that, although widely held, the belief that merit rather than luck determines success or failure in the world is demonstrably false. Mark cites economist Robert Frank in arguing the notion that a guy like Bill Gates didn't achieve what he did by sheer force of ability or, quote, talent, end quote. Frank points out long shots and coincidences contribute to Gates' achievements. He comments on the idea that there are many programmers of similar skill sets who never pulled off what Gates did. Mark then goes on to make the argument against the idea of buying into the concept of meritocracies. He continues even to bring up the idea of self-importance or self-flattery. That is, if you are one of those folks who have achieved uh, and pulled up Uh, pulled off huge success in your field, you must therefore be better than everybody else. I don't necessarily believe that somebody like Bill Gates necessarily achieved everything exclusively by sheer luck any more than I believe that he achieved everything exclusively by sheer brute force, quote, talent, end quote. The article does seem like an interesting read, and if you'd like to read it, just Google it. it. It is a quick read. Now, it would be tempting, in light of this article, to feel badly about yourself. By this I mean, if you've been practicing your head off for decades and are still not, quote, rich and famous, end quote, as a professional musician, you must not be good enough yet. Frankly, this is something that's haunted me for a substantial part of my career in music. However, particularly over the last few years, I've totally turned my back on that notion, and reading this article actually only reinforces the reasons that I chose to do so. Now, I'm not going to use names here, but I can think of one incredibly successful trumpeter who has achieved wealth and fame beyond the dreams of avarice. He is one of the most uh, imitated trumpeters in the world, yet there are legions of players who are physically better at playing the instrument than he is. There are jazz players who show far more musical uh, insight, yet none of them came even close to achieving this level of success. Is this guy, therefore, better than everyone else? Well, no. Of course not. And I think he would even argue that point. 
In looking back over this particular individual's career, it's easy to see a pattern of things that impacted on his ability to pull off all of this. Everything from being in the right place to the right time to just being flat out beautiful as a person. Now, by this <laughs> by this last part, Alan, I, he, this guy is a total heartthrob as a young man, uh, the likes of which have women you know, becoming weak in the knees around him. And he's just really pretty. <laughs> um, now, I most certainly did not mean to imply that this individual didn't work like a dog to achieve what he did. I happen to know that he did work like a dog. He most certainly did deserve a success, and I count that success as an important aspect of my own career development as a musician. However, there, he didn't do it just by sheer force of talent. There were all these other things that impacted on it as well. Now, his success does not mean that somehow I am not good enough. And I sort of mean that editorially, but yeah, for me too. His success does not mean that somehow I am not good enough. Now, speaking for myself, I'm not delusional. I fully recognize that I have plenty to learn as a trumpeter and musician. However, I've spent decades and tens of thousands of hours practicing and honing my skills like most of you have. I am good enough to deserve this similar success. It's just that exterior influences, for example, I was never as pretty as this guy was, <laughs> and I most certainly never turned up in the right place at the right time, so to speak, not in the same uh, level or context. But I do feel I'm just coming to my own as a trumpeter right now. Some will say that's too late. That idea doesn't matter. I just don't care. I am just totally thrilled to finally be getting the hang of all of this. All that matters in the long run is that I'm able to share my sense of musical beauty with those who would listen. This sort of thinking, I would like to think, applies to all of you. Yeah, there is simply, you know, if you are hardworking, as I'm sure you have been, and you're a brilliant player, but you just haven't become rich and famous, so what? All that matters is that you are really trying to be the best you can be and try to share music with a level of integrity that really means something to you. And that means you're making the world a little more beautiful place. And that's really what the function of all of this is, ultimately. And this comes to the, one of the points of this podcast. I want to, in my own small way, give voice to those who, for one reason or another, are not necessarily world-famous musicians, even though they perhaps should be. Never, ever sell yourself short just because someone else has achieved greater notoriety than you have. I've brought this up before. Music is an acoustic love sharing. And in the end, that's all that really matters. Okay, end of sermon. Well, that's the end of this week's episode of Variable D Postle and Ensemble Projects. Thanks once again to Dan Moffat for sharing his experiences with us. Thanks for listening, and until the next show, this is your friendly neighborhood studio man, Nick Ross, up saying, don't stop the music. Peace.